Hi, I'd like to welcome everyone to the Human Resource Committee meeting um, of the, what is it, the 14th of October. And um, we are ready to call the roll, Rana. Trustee DeVries is not here. Trustee Hernandez? Here, sorry. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. We do have a quorum. Uh, um, Kinkini's here as well. <clears throat> Hi, Kinkini. Great, thank you. And um, if I can pull up the agenda, I apologize. I'm not really prepared today. Um, Is the first item the minutes? I'm still looking for my agenda. Ronna, or... Um, yes. Then I would ask for the board to... A motion to approve the minutes. I'll make a motion to approve the minutes as submitted. And second. Great. Moved and seconded without objection. Aye. 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 Thank you. Um, Tony, I'm just going to hand it to you because I can't pull up my yep. agenda very quickly here. Sure. No, no problem. I'm going to share my screen in a moment and, and run through slides. But before we start, I, I wanted to introduce Lynn Velasquez, who you see on the screen. Uh, she's joined us as our new Director of Talent Management. So she's responsible for recruitment, uh, HRAS, and our service center. Comes to us with a... a vast array of HR experience, and I won't say how many years of HR experience, but it is long and varied, much in healthcare, uh, some in the public sector with the UC system, um, much in small hospitals and also at CPMC as well. And so uh, good experience that she's now adding to our team and she'll lead recruitment, HRAS and our service center. And already added great value in the last three weeks and has jumped in with both feet and helped um, significantly over the last 10 days. So thank you for that, Lynn, and, and welcome to the team. Welcome. Welcome, Lynn. Welcome, Lynn. Great. Thanks. So I I will pull up uh, my screen. I'm going to share it uh, while Sheila, who you've met before, our director of total rewards, is going to run through the benefits presentation. Um, and then Jessica will share her screen. And so we'll have a little bit of a transition at that point. But let me pull up my screen, if I may, and just make sure we've got the right presentation share make it full size sorry can you see the presentation i just want to make sure yeah. it's visible great thank yeah. you so uh we'll start off with sheila she's going to run through the major changes in the benefit plans this year we're about to enter into open enrollment and she'll just walk through the major changes and then and pick up any questions you may have about that oh okay so, all right thank you tony um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so I wanted to first talk about what's new, um, what's going to be new for 2021. Um, so first I wanted to talk about the rate changes. Um, Kaiser is reducing their rates by 3%. The Delta Dental PPO and PPO buy-up, those are also reducing by 8.3%. Um, obviously, it's unusual to see reductions in rates but we believe these reductions are largely due to COVID, right? And the lack of utilization due to COVID. Um, 
And so, you know, that's a good thing. Um, but we have added services, uh, virtual services to our plan to encourage employees to continue to receive treatment. Um, so in addition to the Kaiser issue, obviously when we're offering a new, we're also offering Kaiser at San Leandro and Alameda for the first time. Um, all of the hospitals except for all of the unions, except for CNA, um, agreed with this offering. Um, so the CNA members will not have that Kaiser option, which is a loss for them. Obviously there's people that love Kaiser. We just wanted to give them the same option as the rest of the organization has. Okay. This slide here illustrates our rates, our current rate compared to our 2021 rates. You'll see here our self-insured medical programs, our freedom of choice, and our independence program. The independence is our high deductible self-insured product. Those rates are staying unchanged. And you'll see the Kaiser rates are reducing. One thing you'll notice here in these rates is that the Kaiser rates are generally lower. Well, they're all lower than our freedom of choice. We have a small number of employees enrolled in the independence plan, um, but you can see when employees do enroll in the Kaiser plan, the organization does save money. Okay. Um, and now we're illustrating the dental rates. The dental HMO plan, that's a fully insured dental product. Those rates are remaining unchanged and you'll see the 8.3% reduction and the dental PPO and the dental PPO buy-up plan. And then at the bottom, the VSP rates are unchanged as well. Yeah. Um, I, so I know Sheila's, go ahead. Sorry, Sorry. Trustee Jensen, so go what ahead. What are the difference in the, um, in the Delta plan? The difference in deductibles okay. mainly? Or um, well, the, the main difference between the buy-up and the base is the orthodontia. That's the main difference in them. Um, and the dental HMO also offers orthodontia um, and it's a much cheaper plan, but the, the, the rub with that plan is it's very difficult to find a, dent, a dentist. And even if you do, the wait times for the HMO dentist, typically pretty long, but the expenses related to the HMO dental plan are far less for the employees. So that's why a lot of employees um, opt for that one. Thank you. Yeah. The, the thing I was going to add, Sheila, and I know you said this, it's as most of you've been involved with benefits or seen them before, it's incredibly unusual to see rate reductions like this. I don't, in 20 years, I haven't seen rates coming down. Uh, and it's predominantly through utilization and, and potentially underutilization across uh, other employers as well as ourselves that are driving Kaiser and others to drop their rates. What we might expect to pick up next year, the actuaries are not predicting it, which is why the rates are down. Uh, you know, we thought it might be a peak, but based on the trajectory of COVID, there's an expectation that there's going to be an underutilization again, not just by, obviously by our employees who are in these plans, but across the healthcare industry. So we, we don't expect that to change, which is why the rates are so much lower. So would the HS in freedom of choice and independent rates go down if there was a bigger critical mass of folks? Is, is that 
Um, not as much. Um, and, and the reason for that is there are more variable costs within our self-insured programs. I we see. have stock loss insurance. We just got our, 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 our renewal back for that. That's a 15% increase. Um, so there's a lot more variable costs within the self-insured plan. I do believe our actuaries were probably being conservative, conservative and holding those rates constant rather than reducing them because those plans are so rich. Thank you. Okay. Okay, on to the next slide. Okay. So in addition to the rate reduction, we're also offering a new EAP program for 2021. Um, we selected Claremont. They are located in Alameda, so that's a big plus. Um, they are an excellent provider. I work with them with a prior employer. They're very proactive. Um, they're excellent. Um, I've worked with several EAP providers, and they by far are the best. Um, so in addition to changing our EAP providers, we've added additional services. So the employees will now receive five face-to-face -face or face-to-face -face or virtual visits. Um, and we're going to also have 70 employer hours instead of the 15 employer hours. Um, and just to give you all an idea of what those employer hours are for is if we have, like, well, I can tell you a common issue is Sometimes there's employees that don't know how to be, um, behave in a professional manner. Um, and EAP providers will have, you know, a seminar or a webinar that says professional conduct at work, right? Dealing with stress during COVID, all these various topics, right? So the HRBPs will be utilizing the hours. Our new wellness manager, Sophia, sorry, I can't remember her last name, but Sophia will uh, be Newton. utilizing Newton. Yes. Yes, Sophia Newton. Um, and the managers will be able to utilize the hours as well. So we think that's going to be a big asset for our organization, for the employees and for us as an employer. Yeah. Um, and the, sorry, just I was going to say, Sheila, on the five visits, that those are potential therapy visits for employees before the, the other insurance kicks in. So stressful yeah. situation at work, uh, could be a personal issue at home. It gives them immediate yeah. access to that before they're going through their, the other AHS insurances to access uh, therapy. Yes, very much so. And it's also mm -hmm. available to the employees, their dependents, and their household members. Okay. And as we market mm -hmm. it, we, we continue to say that it's 100% confidential because this is a benefit we really want employees to utilize, especially now. Um, so we'll continue to market it heavily. Sheila and Tony, have you seen, I know that's not part of this agenda item, but have you seen any um, up, uh, increase in participation in the AAP? Most definitely. And, and that is actually part of the reason for our, our change. MHN, our current EAP provider, they were not able to deal with the influx related to COVID. Um, and obviously, that's not acceptable, right, because we're paying the same rate, whether it's two calls or 40 a month. Um, they weren't able to ramp up, and they weren't proactive enough as well. I felt like we were chasing them too much. And I know from my person, my experience with Claremont with the prior employer, they're very proactive. Um, so I think this is going to be a big win for the organization. And as I said before, they are in Alameda, so that's another plus. Yeah, I know the principles. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so any more questions around the EAP? No. Okay. 
I'm going to move on to our FSA provider, FSA, HSA, and COBRA provider. Currently, we use Basic Pacific, um, and we have decided to move them to connect your care. Um, basically, for the same reasons as I had with MHN, they weren't responsive. Um, we were receiving complaints from employees saying they would call during the middle of the business day. The calls would go to voicemail. Um, I tested it myself with a claims issue, and I had the same problem. Um, they weren't uh, responsive to employees uploading their receipts so they can get reimbursement. Um, and they kept promising us that they would hire more staff. Nothing really happened. We were paying a lot of money for what I felt was substandard service. So we're moving on to a top tier provider, Connect Your Care, and we're gonna pay 34% less. Wow. Um, they have a, yeah. <laughs> yes, they have a full blown um, service center. So there will be no more calls going to voicemail. Um, and they're excellent. Their website is state of, you know, state of art. Um, it's very user friendly. It's, it's a big step up from basic specific. Um, Sheila, a question about FSA, HSA, or is it um, pay on receipt, on re pay payment on receipt, or is it a um, credit card or a debit card situation? Yeah, yeah. We offer we offer a debit card, and the medical FSA plan, the IRS says on day one, you can have access to your entire balance, right? So if you elect during open enrollment $2,000 for the year, January 1st, you can go spend $2,000 on LASIK or braces or whatever, right? Long as it's a qualified expense. The dependent care and the commuter plan um, and the HSA, that money is only yours to, to use as it, as it is loaded to your account. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So there's gonna be a lot of communications around this change to a new vendor, because obviously they'll have new They'll have new debit cards. It's going to be a new vendor. So we put a lot of work into those communications. Um, for and so calls. people will be able to use, they, don't they have a, um, a certain um, time that they can use, employees can use the basic Pacific benefit after the new year? There's no. a, a, a grace period of a few months, I think. No, we don't have an extension. Our plans end on the at the end of the year. However, they will have until March 30th to submit their claims for any expenses okay. or qualifying expenses incurred during In 2020. 2020. Okay, thanks. Yes. 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 Okay. And so this side slide here is just another illustration of just how expensive these self-insured plans are, right? So currently the employees aren't paying anything for the freedom of choice or the independence program. And you can just see here at the top for single coverage, AHS is paying over $9,800 a year for single coverage. For employee plus one, over 19,000 a year. And for family coverage, the organization is paying over $27,000 a year. Clearly that's not sustainable for the long term. Um, Tony and I have been speaking to Athena to see what we can do about making some plan design changes or putting some cost sharing into place. Those are some goals um, we really need to work towards because these plans are extremely rich and the employees aren't contributing any money. Okay. All right, 
Um, so this slide here just illustrates the um, Kaiser rate, um, the current rate as compared to 2021. Now the employees do contribute to all but the Kaiser low plan and they'll be seeing a 3% decrease in the medium and high rate. So, you know, that's, they'll be happy about that. Okay, so we just wanted to give you all a, a, a bigger picture of our self-insured medical programs. As I said previously, those programs are extremely rich. And Tony has really pushed our broker consultant to provide us with um, figures around the utilization in the AHS network and outside of the network. And so at the top, you'll see 6.95% of claims from June 2018 to May 2019 were in the AHS system. So they went to, you know, Highland, San Leandro Hospital, one of our one of our facilities. But 93.05, they were 93.05% uh, was either in the Anthem network or out of network. So that's what's really driving all of the costs, right? So these benefits are extremely rich and the employees are going outside of our network. That's what that's what's driving all of this cost. 137 million outside of the network, 10 million in. And um, if I can, Sheila, just to add this, because I, I, I know the uh, trustee DeVries has asked this a number of times. The way the plans are designed is in sort of three tiers. You come to AHS or an AHS facility, and effectively there are no copays. So not only do you not have a premium, the care is effectively free. You go to someone in the Anthem network, which we rent, and then you have some level of fairly low co-pays depending upon what service you receive. And then you go outside of that network and the costs go up again. Um, the, the original plan had been uh, in talking to Jeanette when they set this up, would we would grow our primary care network of facilities and our employees would ultimately come to AHS, which is why we set the plan up in the first place. Uh, there were some issues in terms of getting access through primary care. I think there are some privacy concerns that employees have that aren't unusual in healthcare, so they're not unique to us. But over time, a, a very low volume of the charges are coming to us. And even that 6.9, I would say most of them are either ED or trauma type visits uh, that are driving most of that cost. So most of our employees are not coming to the system. Now you can do, you know, there are different ways to approach reducing the costs of the plan. You can have people, or you can have people go to Kaiser, which in a, is in effect cheaper for us, but obviously our ideal was that people would come to AHS. It just hasn't borne out for a number of reasons. A lot of it, a lot of it is around the primary care issue. If I can't see a primary care provider when I want to, then I'm gonna to go to somewhere that I'm able to do, do that. And I think the privacy issue is a concern for our employees as well. And so what was a plan around this product uh, to grow through access to our primary care clinics as we potentially grew them throughout the county really didn't play out. And so now we have a, a fairly rich self-insured plan that doesn't have access to clinics within our system that could potentially drive down the cost. And so again, one of the reasons we added Kaiser to the two hospitals was one, we wanted to equalize the benefit. People in those facilities are not getting the same benefits as the core of the system are, so we thought they should have it. The other is if, if people transition to Kaiser, it's going to serve as money. Now, how much is difficult to say at this point. We'll only see after open enrollment if there's a significant transition. 
but any employee that and dependents that move over is a reduction in our cost and our total benefits expense. So uh, let me stop there and see if any of you have any questions uh, uh, for Sheila or for myself. The services provided by AHS are the, the 10, $10 million, is that based on our charges or? That's what we pay from our self-insured plan through uh, to AHS. Right, that's purely based on medical claims and pharmacy claims. Okay. And, and Tony or uh, Sheila, thank you so much for the presentation. Um, I'm curious if either of you has any prior experience with other systems where, um, you know, a similar program is available, what would have been your expectation? Because that 93.5% seems high. And Tony, I heard you loud and clear that that may be primarily due to whether you can get same day or, um, you know, primary care on the days that you're available. You got to find someone who's, you know, got a schedule that obviously accommodates yours. Um, mm -hmm. But do you, either of you have a perception on what that figure might ideally be? Sure. I, um, let me look into that. You know, we had a self-insured yeah. plan when I was at Stanford. Okay. And so I can yeah. find out what it was, and I'd rather get an accurate number than guess it. it, it it's certainly higher than 6.95%. Oh, right. You know, I've worked... Right. I've worked in healthcare now for 20 years. At least two previous employers had self-insured plans, and I got all my care within the system. So I, I worked at Kaiser previously. There you don't have a choice. So it's not really self-insured at Kaiser. You're a member of Kaiser. It's the only insurance they provide. You get your care at Kaiser. Worked at Stanford. We had a self-insured product not dissimilar to this one, and I went to Stanford because there was care available there, and I went there. Um, but again, you know, it, there are lots of things that were the – this plan was predicated on and you know it's not just access immediate access it's the accessibility of the clinics the location right right so no, on that totally. the hs network is really highland uh, totally. for primary care clinics eastmont hayward so okay. we have those three locations other than highland for right. primary care that that's not a lot of access e even yeah. if the service is good even if there's not a wait list so i don't want to mischaracterize it as something it isn't it's geographically, we don't have a lot of clinic, a lot of spread in the county, and about 60-some percent of our employees, I think 65% of our employees live in Alameda, but obviously that means people live in Contra Costa and Santa Clara and elsewhere and travel in, and we don't have any locations there. Right. And, so and I'm just, it, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, and, and I'm concerned about such a high figure, obviously, that's, you know, yeah. a tremendous amount of money that mm -hmm. uh, we need to incur, so... It, I mean, it, it is a great plan. I mean, if, if you, I, I'm in our self-insured plan, and it's a great plan. And I'm, you know, I have dependents. I'm, I'm uh, a, you know, me plus family. And it's a fantastic insurance. It's the best insurance plan I've ever had. And I've been in healthcare for 20 years. My spouse works in healthcare over for Sutter Health. And we would select ours every time because it's simply a much better plan. Right. Um, it's the richest plan I've ever worked with yeah. by far. So, okay. Can you thank go, you, Sheila. Back on the Go first ahead, page, Trustee but, but it's still, this self-insured plan is still only less than 10% of employees, right? No, uh, we're over, I think it's 60% of employees now are in the self-insured oh, okay. plan. The majority of our employees, trend, it took a number of years, but the majority, again, because there's no charge and it was 
it was predicated on a, a strategy of expansion in primary care. I think almost before any of you were on the board, but when Wright was the CEO, even prior to um, acquisition of Alameda or San Leandro hospitals, there'd been some sense of us growing employee clinics and more primary care clinics throughout the community. Uh, and that just didn't ultimately come to fruition for whatever reasons, but whether it's access to capital or ability to, to deal with that while we acquired two hospitals. And so the two things were connected. And obviously we took a slightly different direction strategically. And so we still have this and it, and it is a great plan and our employees benefit from it. Uh, but it does come at a cost. Yeah. And, and, and my, my just, again, I'm just thinking about what our bottom line looks like right now. Um, you know, how, how, how realistic is it for us to offer this going forward? And does that require, Tony, uh, a, a substantial change in all of our contracts all at one time? Oh, okay. So, um, so the, yeah, most, the contracts vary in language. Um, most of them don't allow for a um, contribution to premium uh, at all. The SEIU general unit does. It allows us to charge up to 10%, but historically we have not charged that amount. What we also don't have a lot of is control of the plan without negotiating the impact with each union. So if, for example, we wanted to charge $10 more for a copay to the ED, and we had a discussion actually with our broker about this there's the potential for that to reduce cost by about 10 million uh, not 10 sorry 1 million dollars because as you run the analysis it saves you substantial amounts of money we would have to negotiate that with each of the 18 unions mm -hmm. well the thing is as you're looking at a renewal you're probably looking at mid calendar year june july and the ability to go through 18 negotiations uh is really very difficult and that's mm -hmm. not a criticism of the unions or anyone else just the bandwidth to go through that for that sort of change is challenging um, and so you'd either have to change the language in the contract uh, and for them, the unions, to agree that you could make changes to the plan or alternatively that there's some level of contribution to the premium. Uh, so there's a, a, a degree of cost sharing with employees. Understood. Yeah. Ideally, it would be both, right? It would be yeah. cost sharing um, and making some tweaks to the plan design so the people who are actually using it are paying more. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Okay. Okay, Tony, move on to the next one. Okay. 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 So I mentioned earlier that we are moving to Claremont and Connect Your Care. Those are our new providers. Um, and then this slide also just has more uh, information on Claremont. The five sessions instead of the three. They also provide simple wheel kits. And we talked about the um, 70 employer hours as compared to the current 15 hours with MHN. Okay. Um, and so also we wanted to give you guys an update on the dependent eligibility verification audit. Um, so what we have found is um, an estimated $2.8 million in savings. Um, and that's for the, all of the HMS audits that were conducted through December, 2019. Um, and we've spent approximately through 2019 $90,000 with HMS. Um, and, you know, we were just talking about our benefit plan designs and how rich they were, right? And so freedom of choice and independence and the Kaiser Low Plan. It's free to the employees and all their dependents, right? So what's not to stop someone, if they're an unethical person, to add their niece or nephew, right? 
um, onto the plan. Maybe they're, you know, someone in their family's lost their job, right? They want to add their niece or nephew or someone else's kid onto the plan. There's nothing really to stop them because they're not paying anything for it, right? So this person's getting insurance coverage for free and they're getting like the Cadillac version of insurance for free. So, you know, that, that dev audit was extremely low hanging fruit. Um, and we continue to re remove dependents every month. I would say the monthly removal rate is about nine per, around 9% each month. Um, but it's something we have to do, particularly because our benefits are so rich. Okay, open enrollment. So clearly this year we can't do our open enrollment roadshows like we've done in the past. So um, we're going to be announcing open enrollment in the next couple of days, and we'll have open enrollment webinars instead of the face-to-face -face meetings. Um, we're going to have um, communications in English and in Spanish. That's something new for us. Um, so we're really excited about that. That's something we've, we've also done with the retirement plan. Um, we have a new process with the new commuter enrollment. They're going to be able to enroll online. Um, that's another feature that Connect Your Care is going to offer, so they don't have to do that by form anymore. Um, we had this, um, I guess it was an interactive benefits presentation type thing that we were using in the past called Alex. We've replaced that with their narrated benefits presentation that's going to be in English and in Spanish, and I think that's going to be a lot more impactful than than Alex um, and just the fact that it's in two languages is going to be a big plus as well. That's going to save us over $65,000 too. Okay. Retirement education, as I mentioned earlier, um, clearly, we're, clearly we're not doing our face-to-face -face retirement meetings that we used to do our educational meetings. So we've done um, uh, webinars and narrated presentations in both Spanish and English. Um, we're also in the process of processing the distributions related to the ECHO plan termination. And also, um, you know, processing our retirement wires is, you know, a, a big compliance issue. Um, and so we're beginning with training backups, um, our HR analysts as backups for the retirement um, wires. So we what, can make sure of our senior. What do you mean by retirement wires? I'm sorry. Um, it's basically when you're when you get your pay, your paycheck and you decide to have X amount of dollars come out of your paycheck to go into your retirement plan, or AHS has to contribute X amount of dollars each pay period based on your earnings to your pension plan. Um, so that's the process where we have to do all these calculations and we have to get the the um, wires correct and they have to be processed in a timely manner. So, you know, to eliminate the risk of something happen, happening to our senior retirement administrator, Cynthia, who's excellent, right, um, we've, we need to have a backup in place just in case something were to happen to her or she needs to leave the country or something like that, that can take over this, this very sensitive task. And so we, we've started that process. Just, and I, uh, Trustee Peterson, just to add to that, you know, historically, AHS or Alameda County Medical Center previously just had a Sarah, obviously the public pension plan, one sort of approach deduction. 
We now have multiple plans. Uh, we have an AHS plan. We have plans over at Almeida Hospital. We have the Steel Workers Plan for the two CNA unions, two CNA units, plus our own 457, 403B. And so when people move jobs and change unions, all of those things have to transfer. We have to stop payments, reactivate payments in the new union. They have to be done with a very specific timeline. And again, I, I, I think it, uh, Cynthia and Sheila came way after the transition, but I could see if you'd worked here before, you would long for the days of just the Sarah, uh, because that would be a very simple thing. Uh, we don't have that simplicity anymore. We have the complexity of multiple, uh, not just the multiple plans in of itself, but the transition of employees across those plans and then our, our compliance with those. And so that's what this is really about and trying to make sure we have appropriate backup and then sufficient automation because we've been very manual in process for a long time and we've been working under Sheila's, Sheila's guidance with our HRS department to improve that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm sorry, could I just ask one question about that um, self-insured plan? One, one last thing. It, it, is there any way to uh, convert that so or change the regulations on that so that if you choose that plan, you must come to an AHS uh, service provider? You, uh, let me think about that. I'm going to say this, and then Sheila, please correct me everywhere that I'm wrong. You, you can change the plan design if you can negotiate with the various unions that you could come to AHS. Uh -huh. a, a, an alternative to what you're suggesting, Trustee Hernandez, might be that you kept it free if you came to an AHS facility, yeah, yeah. but and there was a, and there was a higher charge if you went to mm -hmm. someone in the Anthem network. So there's All a greater right. degree of cost sharing. You could certainly design the plan that way, but obviously, again, you've got to go through the negotiations process each time to do that. Uh, and mm -hmm. what we what you, would be almost impossible to do is have it different for each bargaining unit because to manage that within the HRS system again like the pension plans is is actually a, a nightmare to get done correctly timely and accurately uh, and so you really need the plan to be the same across the various unions if, if that's what you we would intend to do right Sheila, is anything that was incorrect on no but, but no I, I think you said it correctly and you you actually said exactly how our tiers are currently set up right so if you stay within the ahs network it's free right you go to anthem right we have some price Price, price negotiations with Anthem, so there's control, some control there, so they're in the middle. If you decide to go completely out of the network, that's the last option. That's tier three, and that costs the most. So, yeah. but you can certainly design that, a plan. What? Sorry, go ahead, Sheila. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to say that employees absolutely have to, um, you know, yeah. um, stay within the AHS network because you know people generally like to go to you know, facilities near their home, right? And there's a lot of us that live outside of Alameda County. Um, and I just think it's important to give them that choice, especially also if there's a, some, someone has some type of special illness and they want to see a specialist, you know, so I think we just need to give them the choice, but I think we do need to design the plan so we push people to the AHS network. Do you have any sense as a percentage of salaries, what, what our health care costs are as a percentage of salary? The, the actual health care costs, so you're looking, uh, if we looked at a year's worth of just charges, if I recall correctly, so I'm jumping back, we're looking at 147, 150 uh, right. total that's salaries. 11 that's 11 months, right? Uh, yeah. So, so you divide by 11, so 
we could certainly run that. I'd want to make it, make sure we're accurate because we have a lot of other benefits that go into that, you know, roughly mm-hmm. 70, 72 percent that we're carrying. It's certainly something we could find out, Ross, in, in quite accurately for you and the committee. Okay. I think that would be helpful. Okay. Okay. So you're referring to just for the medical, correct? Yeah. Well, medical and okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, then lastly, I wanted to talk about compensation. So obviously, we want to be competitive, right? So it's really important that we have um, a reliable compensation resource. So we recently launched um, Comp Analyst. It's an online tool for market pricing and compensation um, analysis. Um, It's an excellent tool. We're really excited about it. It provides us with a a higher level of data and, and more data as well as well as the analysis feature. What exactly do you mean by a tool? Is it a tool for HR to make decisions about positions or to mm-hmm. or steps or? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for pricing roles, right? So let's just pretend someone has a new role. Um, comp analysts have thousands and thousands of jobs, right? And we can, um, we can narrow it down to the geographic location, right? We can say the Bay Area, right? or we can say whatever little chunk of geography we want to choose, we can price out a role with comp analysts with that. So it's very important because obviously we need to be competitive um, and it really allows you to drill down to price out roles. And, and what, um, sorry, I was going to say to Trustee Jen, so we, get to, we take all of our salary data and we load it into the, their system. And that's part of the participants load their data into the system and it's blinded. So people couldn't say that it's Alameda Health System. You, you'd know you're a healthcare, you, there were certain parameters and guidelines in that. That allows us to look accurately throughout the Bay Area and the, the rest of the United States at a particular job. That could be a, a HRAS analyst, it could be uh, an EPIC. Um, an EPIC analyst, it could be a very specific role. When you get specific, you get less data because there are less, it gets a little bit narrow uh, when you're doing that. But when you've got a fairly broad job title, you can look and get thousands of data jobs from other systems. And that tells you what the pay is. And then you can look geographically and start to narrow it down to where you are. And this is just for at will, just for uh, management or? It, it tells us for everything. We can use it for whatever purpose. So if, if for the purposes of uh, bargaining, for example, you wanted to look at what a nurse pays or an ambulatory nurse pays, for example, that is different than an inpatient nurse, you could get that data throughout a specific region or area. And so the, the fact is you might not be able to set a salary using it, but you could certainly get the data using it that, that informs a discussion. And then right. for, the, for the unrepped, you then use this for salary setting, and we have various levels. Uh, and we again, we keep refreshing the data. And, and for right. your basket, would you use like all of the hospitals in the East Bay or all the hospitals in the Bay Area, depending on what you were looking at? It, it would depend on how many jobs there are, uh, Trustee Peterson. So if, mm-hmm. if you looked at it and there's one data point, it's not enough, right? Mm-hmm. So if you looked at if you narrow, if you become too narrow and say just East Bay, and it turns out not a lot of people have entered data for that job, then you have to broaden it out. Uh, and likewise, if there are a lot, then you can use a very narrow geography because you've got a lot of respondents in that area, and that makes the data more valid. So uh-huh. it, it varies. Sometimes you only get one, you know, one submission. That's not very good. That's not good data. So we have to broaden it out. 
But so so but theoretically, if uh, if Kaiser, Sutter, UC all had uh, similar positions, would they all be in the market basket that you would do? Um, I'll, I'll let Sheila speak to that because I don't know if they're using this particular tool, right? So th there are hundreds of different analysts, and if they're using it, the answer is yes, they'd be in there. And you would you get a sense of that when we looked at the tool and saw how many respondents there were in their area. Right, right, definitely. But obviously, they're not. Their comp analyst doesn't have the ability to report out the organizations that are participating, um, but they yeah. do have a large chunk of the market. So I'm, I'm confident that it's a great tool. Yeah. Um, another thing that we've, we've been able to use it for is sometimes employees will, I'm, when I'm, I'm speaking of unrepresented employees, will come to us and they'll say, I don't think I'm being paid, you know, the market rate for what I'm doing. We'll do a comp, compensation analysis using the comp analyst data and share it with them to show them they're being paid well. And that's very helpful because it's not our data, it's comp analyst data. Again, um, I was just going to add, Trustee Peterson, that the issue in terms of revealing the uh, participant is there's an antitrust issue uh, in terms of um, deflating salaries. And so you, you have to be careful about the information being blinded. Clearly, you can go on a website to get public information, different labor contracts. But as it goes to participant, participation in these sort of survey, surveys, that the information has to be blinded so employers don't collude to depress wages. Yeah, got it. Okay, really if, if there are no more. Okay, thank you, Sheila. That was fantastic. It, uh, before Sheila uh, either goes or stays, whichever she decides to do, are there any other questions about what she presented? Quite, quite no questions, but I, um, I, I'd like to hear more at a future meeting about the, the um, last topic, the, the comp. Yeah, uh, percentage of, uh, yeah. what I got is percentage of medical and dental costs in relation to the total cost of employees. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Um, so I, I knew, thank you, Sheila. Um, uh, last time we spoke a little bit about the COVID leaves and it was relatively new. So I just wanted to give an update of where we are with the broad numbers for that. Um, leaves, we did an aggregate from uh, four one to 10 one uh, when we pulled the data, you see, by location, uh, by campus uh, on the left, um, the number of leaves uh, at each of those facilities. Creekside is the IT facility. System support is where we have a lot of the back office support, HR, finance, accounting, and so on. Uh, the other, they're not classified as a system issue that we're working on, but I didn't want to leave that number out, meaning there's not an identified campus that that person's on. So we, we have to clean that up, but we didn't want to leave the number out. Uh, and the others you see are, are each of the facilities we have throughout the system. Uh, on the right is the, the highest number of leaves uh, by department. You see uh, Highland ICU is very high and ambulatory at Fairmont was high uh, and Eastmont Wellness as well. Mm. So pretty significant numbers. Um, um, I looked earlier today at the total cost uh, we ran about uh, $8 million uh, last fiscal year on these. Um, we're running at $3.6 million so far this year. Uh, so 11.6 in total. Um, obviously, it goes up by pay period. The, the leaves, um, the act itself sunsets that we were following sunsets December 31st. Uh, and so we're looking at exit from that now. 
uh, what that would look like for people who are on an approved leave when they could last get a leave approved to work our way through it appropriately. Uh, there's clearly other legislation, AB uh, 1867 that's passed in California, and then also um, the uh, ordinance that passed in the city of Oakland um, that aren't uh, applicable to us now because we're following this, which is higher than that. Both of those uh, legislation and ordinance expire on December 31st as well, unless, unless they're extended. Uh, and so we're watching those now. We're making an assessment. If any of them would apply to us, would we stop providing this benefit on December 31st? Our benefit is richer than both of them. Uh, they have aggregate total amounts that are lower than what we're paying, which is full pay. Um, but we're going to watch to make sure that if we're required to follow anything that's extended after December 31st, we obviously do so. Uh, and we have to have some discussion internally about exiting from uh, the employees that have had approved leaves that may run past December 31st and how we deal with that situation. So we're working our th way through that at the moment. And do you have a sense of what the average or the maximum leaves are? Uh, we don't. The maximum is 12 weeks. Uh, or th there's a 13th week uh, that can be added. Um, they they were running at about uh, 37 days per person on average, but I think they've increased since I saw that number last, Trustee Peterson, so I'll find that out as well. Um, uh, and I was trying to get it for this presentation, but the vendor wasn't able to get it back to me in time, otherwise I would have shared it. Hey, Tony, um, is the number of leaves, the 1339, is that days? No, that's the number of total individual leaves that were taken. So, and 164 employees had two or three different leaves. Uh, they may have gone on a leave, come back and returned. Then a family member may have been quarantined. Then a school leave may have had to occur because of a, another issue. And so 164 of the 100, uh, 1339 are duplicates, um, or, or in some instances, triplicates, but it's, it's a big number. So is the uh, 1337 uh, working days or total days? No, it's not days at all. It's the number of individual leaves. No, no, no. You you said you thought uh, it, per person it was averaging 37 days by the time you left. Oh, so I, I was yeah, wondering about, about working days or calendar days. That is a great question. I believe that would be calendar days. Okay. Not working. Because we end with a uh, begin a start and end date to that, so it would be calendar. But I'll verify that. I don't. I, I'm pretty certain I'm correct, but I will confirm that as well. Okay. So that was just a quick update on on the leaves. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing now. Uh, and Jessica Pitt, our executive director of Health Path, is going to show you where we are with the program because they've done some great work and and recently got. Um, a report back on the success of the program. So we want to share that with you and show you where, where we're going next. So I will stop sharing for a moment and Jessica will take over. Okay, thank you, Tony. Let me get my screen up. Hey, Jessica. Uh, hello, everyone. All right, uh, can everyone see that? Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. And I'm going to be um, showing you a report and a quick video. So I'm going to have to do a little in and out of the sharing and fingers crossed it all goes smoothly. Um, well, thank you so much for the opportunity to give an update on Health Path. 
Um, as I think uh, most of you know, HealthPath is AHS's career development program that is providing pathways into healthcare careers for underrepresented youth and young adults. And we do that through internship programs, our volunteer program, and another a number of other what we call work-based learning experiences, ways in which we either bring young people into our facilities to learn about healthcare careers or AHS staff go out into schools and communities um, to share about the healthcare field. Um, and as I think most of you know, uh, HealthPath was launched with a $10 million grant from the Atlantic Philanthropies, a private foundation in 2015. And that was initially a three-year grant um, and we have sort of extended that out. Um, so we're now, uh, five and a half years out, a little over five and a half years out. Um, and we probably have a solid year and a half. Maybe we can even stretch it to two years left on the grant. Um, but that is the time when we need to think, really start thinking seriously about sustainability of health path. Um, and also, we've just gotten a, a report from our evaluators. And so all of that has sort of really converged for us to start thinking more about our program growth, our expansion, and our sustainability. So I want to talk a little bit about all of that today. Um, and then I want to share some resources that we've developed in order to really share our successes and uh, raise the visibility of Health Path. Um, so HealthPath is actually a sort of umbrella for a number of different programs, and some of them are what I call homegrown. We actually run them ourselves, like the Health Excellence and Academic Leadership Program, which serves middle school and high school students, obviously the AH, AHS Volunteer Program, but some of them are independent nonprofit organizations that run pipeline programs and are using an AHS facility. For instance, Spaces for the Future is a nonprofit and they are bringing interns into San Leandro Hospital and Alameda Hospital. So we are more sort of a host for their internships. Um, but I would say sort of across that continuum, since 2015, we've uh, easily served 2,000, probably closer to 2,500 individuals who have come through all of these programs. Um, I'm going to focus today mostly on the Health Excellence and Academic Leadership Program because that's our largest program. Um, that uh, serves uh, high school students, primarily high school students, um, and sort of expanding into middle school students. And that's really what our evaluation focused on. But I wanted to give you a sense of what sort of falls under that health path umbrella. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, uh, we were, oops, let me go, um, you know, we were uh, upended by COVID like, you know, everyone else in this world and had to make a very quick pivot to virtual programming in response to the school closures. Um, didn't exactly see that coming, uh, but I just very uh, proud of my team for very, very quickly transitioning and moving our programs almost seamlessly to online experiences. So we were able to have continuity with our high school internship programs. We were even able to continue to do sort of broader, what we call career exploration visits, which are sort of panels of healthcare care providers, um, meeting with students through Zoom. Um, and then we were even doing virtual simulations in the AHS simulation lab. And um, as you all you know, may recall, 
the Atlantic grant paid for 100% of the AHS simulation lab. So that's really an important resource for our programs. Um, so, uh, and we had a very successful, on, mostly online summer internship program, but we really felt by summer, we wanted to, if at all possible, give students some in-person experience. Um, you know, as a parent, I'm just so acutely aware of the limitations and the loss of kids having to learn 100% virtually. Um, and so I have to say that AHS leadership was incredibly supportive um, and willing to work with us to find ways to bring students back um, in safe ways. And so we were able to provide them with in-person simulations in the simulation lab during our summer internship. Um, and that is until the week, uh, the second to last week when one of the students got COVID, not through exposure in at Highland, but through family exposure. Uh, so we did have to sort of pull the plug on it, but it up until then, yeah, it worked extremely well. We then, we had, you know, our big surge towards, you know, late summer, um, and didn't feel, and there was so much uh, uncertainty around, so schools coming back and how they're going to come back, that we haven't done in-person programming for the early part of the fall, but we're about to transition into a second session and hope to go back to uh, giving each student at least one opportunity in the course of a seven-week internship to come to the Sim Lab. Uh, and I just think that's so important because we just know that the students that we serve in our programs are live in those communities are from the communities that are hardest hit by COVID. Um, and if there's any way we can try to um, make sure that they're not losing out even further on educational and career development opportunities, you know, we're very committed to that. So, um, so as I mentioned, we just did um, uh, our, we've had an independent evaluator since the launch of Health Path in 2015, and they just wrapped up a very extensive uh, impact evaluation of our HEAL program. And again, this is the program serving primarily high school students. Um, and uh, since uh, 2015, uh, about a thousand students have gone through that program. Uh, and I am quite sure that we are the largest provider of internship programs to high school students in the East Bay. I don't know of any other system, including Kaiser, that comes actually even close to offering that number of opportunities. Um, and uh, the findings from the evaluation were incredibly impressive. Um, it's a pretty, uh, you know, wonky evaluation report full of data, and I um, will happily share it with all of you, but we really felt like we wanted our accomplishments to be very accessible. So we actually did bring in a consultant um, to help us develop an impact report that's a little bit more public-facing. I want to share that with you briefly, and as part of that as sort of a companion to the impact report, we also did a very short video. It's just a little over two minutes, and I'd love to share that with you as well. So in order to do that, I have to do a little bit of flip-flopping with screens. So please bear with me. So I'm going to stop this share, and then I'm going to reshare. And here we go. Share. Can everyone see that measuring our impact health path? Yes. Okay. Now... Hang on, I have to, there we go. 
Okay, so um, this is a report that um, can be easily shared virtually and you can sort of virtually flip through it or of course we'll have printed copies. Um, and I just wanna go, I'm not gonna go through every page, I wanna sort of get to the data. Um, but this young man uh, on my left is Joseph Peters, who's our lead instructor. His father was a nurse at Highland for over 30 years, and he's been with Health Path for over four years, and he's just a phenomenal mentor um, uh, and instructor to the students. So then I want to just get right into the data. Um, so, you know, really the intent of Health Path is to develop a pipeline of young people who will be future healthcare workers, but ideally future healthcare workers at AHS um, who can provide culturally competent care. So we always like to look at the comparison of our HEAL interns to our AHS pop patient population and see um, that they really, to a large extent, do mirror each other, that we are reaching the students we wanna reach who are from the communities that AHS serves and reflect our patient population. Um, and we're also very pleased that such a large number of our interns say that they wanna come back and either work at AHS or work with low-income communities similar to those served by AHS. And I really think that's um, a, a, a sort of a testament to our curriculum that really focuses on social determinants of health and population health management um, and the populations we serve at AHS. And that seems to be really motivating to our students um, in terms of wanting to give back to their community. 93% uh, of the interns want to pursue a healthcare career. And you just see here from the bubble chart sort of roughly um, where their interest lies. Um, and embedded in this are just these absolutely beautiful stories about our students. And so I really do encourage you to uh, take the time to read through them because they're just, uh, you know, really moving. But really what I want to do here very quickly is just highlight the numbers. And I think that what we're seeing is that our program has a huge impact, not only on these young people's aspirations to go into healthcare and pursue a healthcare career, but also to motivate them to pursue their education more seriously and just uh, pursue higher levels of education. And that is a very significant outcome um, that I hope our education partners are also um, going to be very interested in. So 85% have a clear education path, 84% a clear career path, and 92% are more motivated to pursue their education seriously. Um, you know, that's a pretty significant finding. Um, finally, we have over the past several years focused a number of our programs on the most sort of at risk or hardest to reach students. And one of those groups is young men of color who are so underrepresented in healthcare and really underrepresented in our internship programs. We run some dedicated cohorts from that for them. And they've been very successful. And the impact has been significant in that. 89% of those interns are more interested in school after they've gone through the HEAL internship. Um, and 96% um, are more motivated to pursue their education seriously. And that's higher relative to responses from other students in our program. Um, so those targeted programs seem to also have an impact and be working. So um, I'm, I'm not gonna go through the rest here. Um, this is more sort of 
uh, what a typical student looks like and really kind of sharing what the impact of our program has been. Um, so let me stop there, just pause for a second and see if there are any questions and then we'll go on to the video really quickly. I actually, uh, this is Tracy, I have a question yes. um, about the remote learning. And um, since these are preparing students for for certification programs primarily, right? Um, isn't it, how is, how is the impact in terms of, um, do, do any of the do any of the the heal programs have requirements for um, and health path programs have requirements for hours of hands-on activity? I guess that's my question. No, we don't. We're not a pre-certification program. Okay. Um, we're really more of a career exposure and career exploration program. Uh, what we do make sure is that students come out of our program with a customized career plan and education plan, um, but no sort of requirements. Thanks. Yep. Okay, so I Yeah, thanks, Jessica. Um, I had a question. Yes. Um, I know that I remember when, um, it, you know, this grant was given and it was a three-year and then now it's stretched to about eight years. Is, there, it, is it, I uh, given the evaluation and given the impact of it, is it still a one-time or is there a possibility for Atlantic uh, to do this uh, greater? So that's more for, you know, to do a second round of funding for this. And the second thing is that uh, given the fact that we are a county health system, and I know the MOU was with the OUSD, but um, is it possible to have, like, look at some of the surrounding cities and see what the free and reduced price lunches are in schools in the high school rate or, um, you know, underrepresented minority students are and offer it also to some of the students that might be in surrounding cities? Yes, and I will uh, get to that when we talk about our strategic plan, because that really is part of our vision for growth is to be able to go beyond Oakland and OUSD um, and continue, as you say, that you know, constraint has really been our two main funding sources, both Atlantic and a grant from the Oakland Fund for Children and Youth. Um, both are restricted to Oakland residents or Oakland students. And so that's very much part of our vision for the program's growth. Okay, I'm gonna show this video quickly and hope, crossing my fingers, it's gonna work. Okay. Here. Okay, can everyone see that? Yep, okay. Let's go. Tell me if you can hear it. Can you hear it? My name is Jason Christopher Rivas. I'm currently 19 years old. I live in Oakland. I went to Oakland Technical High School. I did the year-long program of Health Path. I always wanted to help people, but I didn't really, like, know at the start of high school what I wanted to do. The HEAL program is just that program for any Oakland student. They just want to find the next person that believes they could do better if they're really interested in the health field. It's an internship that will just expose you to, like, health field, new health jobs. Just if you want to be a doctor, you can see what day in the life of a doctor is like. Nursing, medical assistant, OBGYN, 
I was born in Oakland, California. My neighborhood isn't the best. I couldn't even really play basketball with my friends on the neighborhood block without hearing gunshots. It was just scary sometimes, too. Gangs and violence. Growing up was just like, oh, he's getting taller, he's getting bigger. Oh, he might get jumped into a gang. It wasn't what my mom or my dad wanted. They wanted me to go to school. Both of my parents were immigrants. My dad grew up in Mexico, Guadalajara, Mexico. Came here when he was 13 years old. Didn't go to school, he just went straight to work. My mom was born in El Salvador. She fled her country because of wars and just gang violence. My mom and my aunt ended up leaving. Once they got to the country, they established themselves, became citizens, brought my grandma legally here. Me and my grandma have a good relationship. Since I was born, she's always taken care of me. She still takes care of me, too. I know my dad really wanted me to graduate high school, and that's all he really wanted because he never even got the chance to go into high school. The day I graduated high school was kind of emotional for me because I finally saw him tear up. But my accomplishment isn't really like going to college, it's finishing college with a degree and going into the health field. HealthPath has helped choose my career. It has shaped how I am and what my career is going to be. I want to be a nurse. And for me, it's not really about the money. It's about what I can learn, what I can help, and what I can do for my family. Jessica, that was very nice. And I really want to say, Jason is representative of our students. He is not an outlier by any means. Um, okay, let me get back to the presentation. And, and Jessica, while you're doing that, um, I happen to work in a couple of systems as a consultant, and uh, I'm just curious if any system in our area, like in the East Bay, that's kind of large and private, um, what if they wanted to participate in this and pay for the support? Would would there be any possibility of sharing um, the students among not just AHS, but in another system? I well, I think we would have capacity issues, um, so I'm not sure how that would work. Um, if we had some sort of consortium with, for instance, a Kaiser, and could create more rotation opportunities, for instance, yeah. um, we certainly could, conceivably could. We'll well, I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering if you would welcome some money if they were willing to. Uh, I'm not speaking for Kaiser, but what if others were willing to participate with you? Yeah, no, I think we'll be open to that. Okay. Um, Okay, so let's go. Um, So we are uh, working on a strategic plan, and um, Michaela Hayes, formerly with the Alameda Health System Foundation, who many of you may know, um, has been a consultant and has been uh, working with me on that, and we're wrapping it up. Um, And uh, I just wanted to share a little bit about, you know, where we see the program going. Um, First of all, we really want to increase impact, um, and that's by 
serving more students, but not just high school students, but really going backwards and doing more early career exploration exposure with middle school students and doing more with college students. Um, and we uh, have hosted a small number of college interns every summer, um, and that program has been very successful. And so we'd really like to sort of expand in that area as well. Um, certainly strengthen our capacity. We are small but mighty staff. Um, and I think in order to grow our programs, we really need to think about growing our staff and really um, wanting to support them um, in a number of ways um, with their own professional development. Um, and then, as I you know, mentioned earlier, we're really starting to think about sustainability as we sort of you know, go into the sunsetting of the Atlantic and um, sort of feel like we have a year and a half runway, and that's probably how much time it will take um, to find some other funders who want to step in. And I'm sorry, the question earlier about Atlantic was about Atlantic, about whether they would fund. Uh, did someone ask a question that I didn't answer about funding? Yeah, trust, Trustee Banerjee was yeah. saying Trustee yeah. Banerjee didn't right. have the chance. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't answer that. So uh, Atlantic is very interesting foundation. Um, Chuck Feeney, the founder, um, opened the foundation with the intent of spending the entire corpus of his you know, billion plus dollar wealth in his lifetime. And actually just within the past month, they've completely shut down um, the foundation. And he and his wife live in San Francisco modestly with less than $2 million left to their name. It's really a remarkable story. So sadly, there will be no more Atlantic money coming our way, but we were a great beneficiary of one of their, one of their last large grants actually. So, um, so currently we still have the Atlantic money, Oakland Fund for Children and Youth, which is through the city of Oakland and then OSHPOD, um, which is the you know, statewide office of health planning and development. Did I get that right? Um, safety, health planning and development. Have, we have a small grant from them. Um, we're actively fundraising, working very closely with the foundation. Um, and I am pleased that Health Path remains a priority of the foundation. Um, and I hope their new leadership um, will embrace us as well. Um, we have a few prospects. Um, we just we were invited to submit a full proposal to the Gen and Tech Foundation, which um, has uh, RFP out for STEM-related uh, grants uh, in the K-12 space. And so we've applied for a $360,000 grant from Gen and Tech, which um, I you know hope will come through. They certainly seem to like our letter of interest, um, and we'll be meeting actually uh, tomorrow with uh, the executive director of the Warriors Foundation. Um, and as I said, having conversation, working with the um, foundation around Kaiser, for instance, obviously a prospect we would love to figure out how to approach, um, uh, and other funders as well. And so I would just also say, if any of you have any sort of thoughts, suggestions, connections um, in the funder world, uh, please let me know. So I will. Is, do you, um, have you talked to the San Francisco Foundation or the East Bay Community Foundation? Um, so we have, we have in the foundation. Uh, yeah, um, and I actually uh, worked for seven years at the San Francisco Foundation, so I know them very well, and we just don't fit into their funding priorities vision. Um, 
It's a much more uh, kind of organizing, power building sort of focus now across all the different pro program areas. And nothing falls sort of traditionally into health or education in the ways it actually did when I was there. Any other questions from the board? Great, Jessica, that was a tremendous presentation. It's so good to know that those activities are still are continuing and um, really preparing preparing the next generation of, of, of healers. Yeah, I love it. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jessica. I, I would just add before she goes, Jessica's done a great job of integrating with HR. Health Path is sort of a program unto itself. It's funded uh, through the donation, but uh, Jessica has worked very closely with Arlene Gomez, who runs our learning and development department that reports into Linda in ways uh, uh, to expand workforce planning, looking at training programs so we could advance our existing employees. And so they've worked very tightly together around the, um, the Ed Fund with SEIU, and we've done some programs with that to try and not only build a pathway for people who are not old enough to work in our system yet, but to, to make that connection. Um, we've also talked a little bit about mentorship programs, and it's not fully formed yet, but there are obviously a couple of groups, uh, Hispanic women and African-American men, that are underrepresented uh, in healthcare and finding ways to move those people out of health path as they go into college and developing mentors within AHS for them so they can stay connected. And again, you know, whether they come and work here or not is not the most important thing. If they get a career in healthcare that's sustainable, they can support themselves and their families and something they may not otherwise have had an opportunity to do, then we've created a great foundation. If they work here, then it's a bonus. Uh, but really it's about advancing these kids through into opportunities that they may, may not have otherwise had. Um, Tony and, oh, sorry. I just wanted to add really quickly, since we have Trustee Hernandez here, that you know I've been active in the HEDI committee as a co-chair of one of the workforce development yeah. task force, and you know I really see Health Path as um, you know a, a core component of the work we're doing around HEDI, um, and really would like to elevate its work um, under you know the banner of HEDI. It, it is absolutely, and um, I. I I don't want to talk about the actual organization that I'm thinking of, but it really feels like a consortium among the other systems that are in the East Bay it makes natural sense to try and do this, to elevate it and to expand it, obviously to reach more uh, students. I, I do have a follow-up question I just thought of. Um, does it extend primarily into high school and maybe the first couple of years of college, or do you actually uh, participate with those who are in a degree program already? Well, I mean, we offer right at the moment a small handful of summer internships for students who are mostly sort of towards the end of their college years. Okay. Uh, but our interest is expanding that to really uh, cover the whole continuum and, and actually to really focus primarily on community college students and Cal State East Bay students. That's I feel like there are many more opportunities for UC students. Um, so those could be students who are just in a two-year associate's degree wanting to go into a medical field. Yeah, that's terrific. I think that the need is tremendous and, and it's a wonderful uh, example of what we need to be doing that's part of that heady uh, committee and and thank you so much Jessica for leading this and and showing the way that's great thanks Jessica 
Uh, let me share my screen again, if I may. And I need to get the right presentation, if you just bear with me a second. Uh, um, I have one question while you're doing that for Delvecchio, actually. Sure. Um, Delvecchio, is, is there any support for Health Path coming from um, the Alameda Health System Foundation? Uh, that's what Jessica was, was mentioning, but let me uh, make sure I'm understanding your question. So mm -hmm. the foundation itself uh, is, is not a grant maker. Uh, we are... Uh, basically a conduit for grant makers to right. organization. Uh, so um, so in, in some ways that makes them a little bit of a grant maker internal to the organization, but generally through the uh, the ability to get dollars from other entities. So that's it. Is that answering your question? Yeah, I pretty much. I know that, that um, the foundation is raising funds mostly for um, operations and purchase of capital items and things like that. So I just was curious if there was any discussion at the foundation of, of supporting the the program, the health. Path. So, so that the answer is yes, yeah, and and, and that's I mean it, exactly what you just described. So generally, as we raise money from certain uh, entities for uh, uh, programs, we have priorities, and as Jessica mentioned, Health Path is one. And in fact, I was on a uh, donor cultivation uh, call probably about two weeks ago. Uh, where we were highlighting Health Path uh, as one of the programs that we thought aligned well with their funding priorities, and we we do that um, strategically from time to time with with target uh, targeted uh, donors. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Christy Jensen and Delecchio. So I'm going to move through this relatively quickly, and the the reason I'm going to do that. Sorry, go ahead, Trustee Hernandez. Could you just swap out? You're showing us the presenter view. If you just go up to display, I can. <laughs> it'll make it bigger. That's all. Yeah, that one. Yeah. There you go. Got him? Okay. Awesome. Good. Thank you. Um, uh, because one of the uh, the uh, questions that came up for the full board when we were looking at True North metrics was Trustee Hernandez talked about a particular metric. So what I want to do is go through our regular dashboard, but do so quite quickly show you um, a dashboard we're attempting to develop that will be going to business partners to be shared at the individual manager level that has more detail so you get some sense of what we're working on and then um, talk about trustee hernandez's question which was uh, recently hired people into the organization demographically broken down in a comparison to uh, community uh, be it county or some other measurement and then have some discussion about that because I know yourself and trustee DeVries mentioned wanted to talk about it so I want to make sure we have enough time for that so I'll move quite quickly if I can and then if you want to stop me please do so uh, but I wanted to make sure that you had enough time as a, a committee to talk through that and, and give some guidance about where you wanted to go in terms of uh, measurement in terms of either the full board or just for the HR committee. Um, so our, this is our regular dashboard, time to fill. Uh, we're looking fine. You know, we're a little bit over target, but we're pretty close to it in terms of the days it's taking to recruit people. A little high on the onboarding. We slowed down in terms of COVID. There's been some issues there in terms of getting people ready uh, and into the organization, which is not unexpected. Um, so that I think we're doing particularly well, considering the, the COVID circumstances. 
Um, not much change in terms of new hires, in terms of people living in Alameda County, which was something we started to track. Uh, we float around 63, 64%, been as high as 65, depending upon a given month or quarter, but not much change there. Um, workers comp picked up. This is a calculation of the productive hours. And so in talking to our workers comp insurance, they think that'll trend down again but it's just a math issue related to the total productive hours in the period we're measuring. And so we will keep an eye on it, but there's not a great deal of concern that there's a, a peak there. Um, and so we, again, we'll keep an eye on that. Total, total number of injuries, again, fluctuates, and I think we would expect to finish the year on target, even though we're higher in the last month. We expect it to trend down because we see some peaks and troughs throughout the year, and it usually washes out. But again, we'll keep a close eye on that. Um, Turnover, again, we've had this ongoing discussion that it's high uh, and it's continued to be high. Uh, we got a particular peak in the last quarter. There are a number of people as we went through compliance, uh, our annual competencies, we open a window that's three months in length where everyone does training and Trustee Jensen had asked that we present on that last time uh, in committee about the number of trainings and how we rolled that out. Uh, a number of pre predominantly sans of employees who don't complete it. We give a three-month window. That's then followed by um, 14 days off the schedule to try and complete it, after which people have voluntarily resigned from the organization. And so we see a peak, and we'd expect that to drop down again. Now we've gone through that compliance window. But again, it's the, the turnover is much higher than we would like, and there are a lot of things involved in that. Um, as you see, we're going from left to right, 19, 20, and 21 year to date. Uh, the voluntary reasons maintained are pretty much the same. It's shift and uh, retirement, so nothing substantially has changed there. Uh, involuntaries, you see that people, uh, in terms of varying reasons, there's some layoffs, um, there's unsatisfactory performance, uh, and some people let go in their probationary period. Uh, and so, again, uh, it's overall higher than we would like. I'm working specifically um, with Janet McInnes and, and Lynn since she arrived and Robin Hodge in our recruitment department and changing our selection process, particularly with the nursing, the nursing across the system. It's the biggest number of individuals we have. It's the area that we have the greatest opportunity to make an impact. Uh, and we think we're just on the selection side. We are moving too quickly. We're hiring people where there may not be a fit. We're also managing them out of the organization too quickly. Uh, if we're going to spend the time and investment to hire people, then we shouldn't really be firing the number of people or the number of people shouldn't be resigning in that first six months. It's a mixed bag in there, but it, there's clearly an issue. We've met uh, a couple of times now with Janet. She's clear and comfortable that we need to change. Uh, we have a proposal she's accepted, and so we'll be changing how we select people. Uh, once we've rolled it out in nursing, then we'll be looking to do it more expansively. Uh, some of the things that are included in there is the diversity of the selection committee, uh, who's on a panel that gets to select people, the type of questions they're allowed to ask, submittal of that information to HR so it's collected within our recruitment system so we can track back and see if there are issues around individuals and, and an extensive training of implicit bias with the people who are going to be on the committee. So what we'll do initially is very have a small group of people who can do this and then while they're doing that and they focus on recruiting or selecting, we'll be training the other managers in the organization at the same time. But rather than try and roll out training across 300 people, that's going to take too long. We want to focus on a select group of people and get their skills to a higher level. 
and then use them as the core people who get to interview in the organization. From there, we then are training the rest of the organization to bring them up to speed because we've got to shift the manner in which we're selecting people because it's, le it's leading to turnover that's just unsustainable. Mm -hmm. Tony, um, a quick question. Yeah. Um, on the, a huge number of them either are not responding or there's the other reasons. Yeah. And what are some of those things? Like, I know that there must be yeah. a whole host of them, but could you give some examples? Yeah, of course. Um, so non-response is they, we have a vendor uh, called the Work Institute. They call multiple times to people. We're actually working with them, and there's going to be a shift to an online ability to respond, so we expect this response rate to go up. So uh, the first thing is they do it by phone call only right now. We're shifting to both online and phone call, so we expect an improvement in response rate. So that's going to help with that. They just haven't responded to those. And there are multiple. It's not an individual call, phone call. Um, people relocating to leave the area. Uh, people not liking an individual manager. Uh, sometimes someone not feeling supported. There's a vast array of questions, and some of the problems with the data is there are so many opportunities to give a response. It can drill the data down to almost one or two people. And it, it, obviously that is both their truth and their experience with the organization. But when it gets to one or two people, it's hard to aggregate in a way that you're trending and saying this is clearly an issue we need to resolve. What we're assessing and in, in, in talking with Janet about this, we've, the the investment in time on the selection process isn't there. So if you look at the data, our recruitment time is very good. If you think about the, you know, I, not just our recent experience in the last 20 days, but if you think about the last two and a half years where we've talked about our financial position at every board meeting, mm -hmm. uh, both publicly and in, in other settings, and there's been a clear message about our financial position. And that's not a good or a bad thing, it is the reality we've discussed, and yet we've still been recruiting people in fi around 50 days, just over 50 days. And mm -hmm. so in the last, cal last fiscal year, sorry, we recruited 1,100 people. And so hiring people is not our issue. The selection of the right people who are going to stick is the issue, and how we are treating them when they're here is an issue. And so what I discussed with you around selection is one element of the things we're looking at. Lynn, uh, has already met with me more than once, and we've got follow-up meetings coming up on how we do um, serve, pulse surveys at 30, 60, 90 days, what questions those are for individuals, how we track that response, and then how we intervene. Uh, the dashboard that I'll talk about in a few minutes is one of those things that is going to ideally help us intervene with, uh, in an area to prevent this from occurring. Uh, and so we've got multiple things that we're trying to address, and that will make it a little, little difficult in the entities out which one of those interventions was the one that made the difference. It's probably going to be all of them, but we've got to have multiple interventions here because it's just too high a rate to sustain. Now, when I do comparisons to market, our first and second year turnover is not out of the norm in healthcare, uh, and that's not a good thing, but it, it is not unusually high uh, when we look at other organizations. I see. Uh, sorry, did that answer your question? Yes, it does. yes, thank you. And it's good to see the whole range of, uh, you know, interventions being planned. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think any one thing is going to get us there. It, we're going to have to do multiple things across multiple areas in the organization. I think some of the heady work that's going on is going to help people's connection to the organization. And obviously these interventions that we're going to do from on the HR side as well. But I think it's going to be a mixture of all of those things that we're going to have to use. 
this is the EEO data we've we've been reporting on uh, to you. Obviously, we send it to the um, EEO every year, uh, but this is uh, for 2020. Uh, you see, um, you know, not significant shifts. If you look at it, we're underrepresented in Hispanics uh, or Latino, Latinx, sorry, is a more appropriate term. They, on the uh, EEO, it's still termed as Hispanic and, and likewise in the census data. Um, but you'll see that we're underrepresented in, the, in that area. Um, and in the professional area, we have, you know, in, in all areas, we're, I wouldn't say overrepresented in female. Healthcare is a more predominantly female field. And so you would expect there to be a skew in that area. Um, what I would say is, as you look at the more senior level positions, uh, there is a drop off in female representation. It's something that we've talked about and, and have addressed, you know, trying to continually address uh, when we look at hiring from outside the organization into those higher level roles. Uh, this is 2019 data, and again, it's not substantially different year to year here. Uh, Tony, um, yes. could you just do one thing for me? Go back to that Absolutely. slide on uh, one more thing. 19. Yeah. So I wonder if there's some way that you could uh, display this data a little bit differently. Because, for example, yeah. tell me, let's just take one example, professionals. What's the percent of uh, white black, Hispanic across those fields. I mean, the bars give me one sense, but honestly, that I had said this before, I think it was yeah. better to give us a percentage. Say, say that one more time for me. So you, rather than the number, the percentage of uh, black, Who Hispanic, are normal races yeah, so, in, in, so, in each of those buckets? Yeah, so okay. tell me, do, do, are you able to scroll over that and get a live figure, or maybe that's a static no. picture? Oh, it's okay. A static, these, these are, well, this is a, so our, our data gets dumped out of a system and put yeah, in yeah. a spreadsheet, and, and then we pull these together. So it's, it's not a live reporting system that we have to get okay. the data. Okay, but that But I, be I understand the question, yeah. Uh, because there, there are some um, areas where I think those percentages are actually more indicative of, of other issues going on. So for example, you know, you have a very small number of Latino nurses, let's say, but the yeah. state of California only has 4% Latina, Latino yeah. nurses. And, you know, I guess as long as we're at parity with that, I'm okay. But yeah. in other categories, this makes it harder to kind of read that. Just, so, just a it. request. Understood. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good request. We can do that. I'll work with our HRS team to see how we make that transition. Um, but uh, I don't think it's a problem, but I'll talk to them because, again, it's a manual yeah, yeah. report that we do in, yeah. in Excel, but I, I think we should be able to I'm, do it. I'm pretty sure you can convert those to numbers without too much difficulty, yeah. and I think that's what's key. Yeah. And, and at some point, you know, again, uh, to uh, Trustee Noha's comment earlier, we do need to look at um, how we stack up against the zip codes that we serve. So it, it, I know we serve all of Alameda County, but the large percentage of our uh, patients come from a set of zip codes that are much closer to us. And so those figures somewhere in our you know, discussion need to be um, talked about as well. But I, I think it's a good point, and I did listen to it. Uh, I, I think it was um, 
Noha mentioned it, and then Trustee DeVries mentioned it. The question becomes, where do you recruit from? So if you look at the immediate zip code surrounding us, that may or may not be the recruitment pool for us. Yeah, you know, understood. not because we want it to be or don't want it to be. Uh, and we may, ref and we more, what I would say is we more heavily reflect um, Oakland from five or ten years ago. You know, Oakland uh, has become more Asian and has right. become more uh, Latinx. Uh, than African-American, but with the aging existing population, right. we will move in time. And, and some of that may become apparent as we look at some of the other slides. Thank you. Just jump forward. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Sorry. But the answer is yeah. So um, what we're working on right now is taking information from the various systems we have and dumping them into a data warehouse. Right now, the, the database, the the dashboard you've been looking at or information you've been reviewing comes out of Lawson, which is our HRAS system. We take a data dump into a CSV file, and then we manually pinky with the data, not a technical term, and then put a basically stick a, a, you know, a presentation on top of it, just a, a, a graphical display of that data. Right? But there's, there's no reporting system. There's no floating over any buttons and it spitting out the data that we want. So we're trying to pull that data out, and we have a data warehouse with our business intelligence department called Power BI. Uh, and what they're doing for us is getting that data out in a manner that we think we can manipulate more effectively and report down to the lowest levels by department. So I'll, I'll hover, and where you see my mouse, these are the departments. Every department in the company will be in this, in this area. And we'll be able to click on it, and this is obviously a static slide, uh, but within the system, and then look at that individual department. When you look at the organization, you see the split of gender of male and female uh, by uh, um, race, ethnicity, so Asian, African-American, white, Hispanic, split by male and female. Um, and so you'll be able to do this at the department level. So we get to see where those, those splits are. Uh, and again, if you see at the bottom, and it's not particularly clear here, but we or by all employee, by age, by all classification. So we'll be able to start digging down in a more effective way uh, and looking at that data. So here you see an individual department selected. I'll meet a hospital nursing administration. We see the gender split, and then we see the race ethnicity split in that department. And so this is the sort of data that we can then make more actionable by looking at it and seeing shifts in this data over periods of time and looking at past reports and then seeing progression or regression, depending upon how you look at it, in, in the evolution of an individual department. So this is, again, another report, all of the population broken out by age and ethnicity. And so over here on the right where I'm just hovering my cursor, you could click into an individual grouping and it would show the ethnicity and gender of that group. Um, uh, by age. And so you would see a real breakdown of those uh, employees who are 18 to 29. What does that ethnic, ethnic group look like and gender split in the organization uh, versus uh, the 30 to 39 or the 50 to 59 population? And again, we start to see better cuts of this data uh, and by department level. So we can really start to see one is, is there an issue? Is, is this, are we leaning heavily towards a singular uh, selection, again, to the earlier point about selection, do we look entirely Caucasian, entirely African-American or Latino in, in a particular department? Uh, is that endemic of an underlying problem? 
and how do we look from age groups? And we see that age groups uh, vary in terms of our demographic right now. Um, when I go to the next slide, this is the over 70 demographic. You see predominantly Caucasian, uh, some Asian, African-American, and the Hispanic and Latino population much smaller in the older population in the organization. We tell tells its own story about how the organization was made up from a demographic standpoint historically. The next is um, looking at the various levels in the organization. So here, I think uh, it, it is much more actionable when you look at executives and directors that we see if there's a drop off. And this is real no, data I mean, I from a moment. I don't know about everybody else, but I can't really see the, um, the, 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 I know it's in the, um, in the package, but with yeah. regard to the, the, the yeah. classification areas, um, it's kind yeah, of hard I, to I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know I can make it bigger. And the, so the intent is to give you a sort of flavor of where we're going with this, because uh, obviously this was a moment in time as well, a snapshot. Once we have it fully uh, operational, I'll show you a live demo of it so you can actually see it. And ideally, that will be in, in a manner that is clearer to you so you can see it more effectively. Um, again, this starts to show the splits in the organization by level, by director, executives, frontline staff, Again, male and female, and we get to see the demographic again, or the race and ethnicity again in a manner that we think is more actionable. Again, here, this is showing the organization, but the, the implication, and not the implication, the intent is that we can dive into individual departments or smaller areas in the organization to see what the issues are, uh, and then start, again, building action plans. If it's an individual area that has become predominantly of a single race or, or, or ethnicity or gender, how do we approach that? Uh, is there an underlying issue? Uh, and then we can start to fix that problem once we can cut into the data in a, a more granular way. Again, this is just a, a look at directors, uh, female and male, uh, predominantly female, 60 female directors, 25 male directors, uh, more heavily uh, Caucasian and Asian. You know, that is not reflective of our total population. So if you look at this slide on its own, I look and said, there's how do we, you know, advance promotion from the managerial levels and frontline levels into the director level opportunities within the organization because there's a there's a drop off. And so we need to close that drop off and make sure we're progressing people through the organization. So that uh, to give you a flavor of where we're going with uh, this is called Power BI. We'll be dropping in our recruitment data here as well. Uh, that we don't have access to right now that will show us time to fill. The point being, we'll have a dashboard for an individual manager by department to show how they're performing within the employees. So what's their turnover rate look like? What does their time to fill look like? What do their demographics in their department look like? What does engagement look like at that in the individual department? Do they complete their performance evaluations on time? And all of that is going to be pulled into this um, data warehouse so we can see it at the department level and that's going to help us drive performance by having interventions with a leader who seems to be struggling or there seem to be issues there. What those issues may be we can't say right now but we'll deal with them on an individual basis. It may be someone new to a department, it may be someone who lacks an individual skill set but we can now uh, or we will soon be able to see that data at the department level and really intervene in a hopefully a, a meaningful way.
Um, data is always good. Yeah, and so I'll, obviously it's harder right now on your smaller screens, but ideally we'll work uh, to give you a, a live demo of it, and you'll be clearer when we do that. So this is, uh, I know Trusty Hernandez asked for, for this, so we pulled uh, an immediate um, data pull for a single month of new hires because you'd ask for what do the new hires look like for an individual month. So we, the, the right is the HS current population. The left was the month of September. We could have pulled any month to look at it. Um, sorry, that's the population in October, yeah, uh, on the right. And the September hires were all new to the organization, so up to the end of September. Um, so you see some higher uh, reflective uh, populations than our current population. So Asian's the largest current population within AHS. Uh, Asian was the largest population hired within the month. Um, and then the, the drop down was uh, to African American in terms of new hires, then Caucasian, and then uh, Hispanic, uh, Latino. Um, and it's you know not dissimilar when we look on the right hand side, which our current population is currently population Asian, African American. Then it is um, white, and then drops down to Hispanic. All right, so there's. We are hiring more um, Caucasians uh, in the month than, uh, you know, percentage of the existing population. Um, and so we want to look at the outreach we're doing. We're pretty confident we're doing pretty solid outreach. Uh, the selection process that we talked about earlier, which is implicit bias training for the selection committees, the demographic makeup of that committee, i.e., it can't all be of a single gender, of a single ethnicity. Uh, that if there's someone absent from that committee, that they will be replaced by someone of the same demographic grouping. Again, so we don't see an unintended shift simply because someone's absent and can't participate. Uh, and those are some of the things that we're working on, again, particularly with nursing, because we think we can see a shift there. Um, to the question about uh, that came from... Um, Trustee Abeletta and Trustee DeVries about the current population. This is the estimate of um, population makeup in Alameda County. I don't have one for the immediate zip codes around our facilities, but this is what Alameda County looks like today. Um, as you see, uh, green being Asian, like our employee population, is the largest population in the county. Uh, African Americans, a little over 10%. Uh, Caucasian is over 30%. Now, that is not reflective of our patient population. It's also not reflective of our employee population. Um, now, you can narrow it uh, a little bit by zip code, but I think the discussion for you to have as a, as a committee is how you want to see this, you know, because as we look at the recruitment market, we're looking predominantly uh, sometimes at new grads, so people new to the profession, very often people who are experienced in healthcare, and so it's a broader net some in Alameda County, some in San Francisco, Contra Costa, Santa Clara. We have some people who travel, I know, at San Leandro Hospital from out of state uh, that have worked there for a number of years and come in, come into state and work to the hospital for multiple days within a given period. Excuse me. So I think for the uh, committee, you, you'd asked a little bit, and this is just a couple of questions to get you going in your discussion about what you actually want to see related to HEDI and this, this recruitment data so we can look at how we get it for you, uh, how we put it in a format that's useful for you, 
to reflect what you want to see either the HR committee or at the full board committee. Yeah, so, ahead, so this, is, this is really complex to answer, and, and I don't think we yeah. can do it in 10 minutes. I, I think the nexus of this um, set of slides, however, is just a fundamental question for us to um, grapple with. And that is, um, when you see the current population that we have now employed at AHS, how do we, over time, ensure that that demographic is, is as reflective as possible of the community that we serve? And that's not defined by the county. It's defined by zip codes. It's defined by some number, right? And uh, Tony, if you go back a little bit, uh, just one slide. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Alameda County is changing radically. Uh, this is not what it looked like 25 years ago. Right. And, and so naturally, we hire people 25 years ago, and they're not leaving. So we have a very different demographic inside right. than what we have in our neighborhoods. And so we have to be super careful not to overreact and say, wow, we have an overrepresentation of any one group. This yeah. is what it looked like 25 years ago, 30 years ago. It's going forward that I think all of our practices around inclusive hiring and diversifying our pipeline source is what it's all about. So Health Path, for, Health Path, for example, the HEAL program, is a great way to begin to think about how, how that pipeline changes, right? Because now we're seeing, I, I bet you have a lot of Latinos in that program because that's the youngest population, the larger group that's growing and so on. And so, Trustee Jensen, this is a hard question to answer, but it's the discussion that maybe we have at a retreat or happens inside HETI with the uh, chairs uh, for each of those task forces to just give Tony some, you know, I, and I know, Tony, you're part of that, but to, to yeah. give Tony some cool. texture for us to have that conversation because what, what you don't want to see is that... Um, our, our population of, of staff continues to be skewed in a direction that reflects maybe Oakland 50 years ago or 25 years ago. We need to be ready for the future. And so that looks very different than what we have right now. And it's not something we're going to correct in any one year or two or three or four, right. but our practices, our policies, our, our approach to this just need to be conscious of, of what, uh, you know, we have today and where we're headed in the future. Um, so, Trustee well, it Jensen. it sounds like you've answered the question, at least the, the last question, Maria, which is, you know, the desired outcome of reviewing the data is to establish an organization that reflects our, our, our community and our patient community. Yeah. It, it is, what, and, what I and heard the hard is, part is how to get there. <laughs> yeah, but, but what I heard there is a, it's a nuanced word, and so it is evolving community. It is. Uh, in, in that it's ever-changing. 
Um, you know, the, the issue I think we face, and this is why it's useful to have this, for you to have this discussion, is uh, there, are, there are two or three things that, that I think are important to think about. Healthcare generally recruits from a fairly broad geographic area, you know, because people travel uh, to hospitals, they go past multiple hospitals uh, to get to work on a, on a daily basis, and there are a lot of opportunities for them. So I think you're never going to recruit from the immediate area that surrounds a facility. You're going to have some people there. I know people that work here at Highland that I've talked to and worked to other parts of our system that, that live down the street, you know, within uh, a couple of blocks of a facility. Uh, but that's not an absolute norm, particularly as you get into some of the, uh, you know, physician or mid-level positions or even some of the nursing positions, because as you rightly said, both Oakland and the county have evolved over time. Some people got themselves into a better financial position and moved away. Now, they came from Oakland originally when, when they took a job here or San Leandro or somewhere else, but then decided they were going to move further east because they could afford a larger home for their family. Now, the question to your earlier point is, do you not want those people anymore? I don't think the answer to that is yes, and I don't think anyone suggested that. But I think that's why it's such a complex question to answer. If you on the front end have appropriate practices, then you should be, and, and are vigilant, then ideally you are maintaining, you know, where it is you want to go. Uh, but it will be slow, not because it's deliberately slow, but because the um, demographics shift slowly and people leave the organization. Despite that front end that we talked about, that turnover that's unsatisfactory to all of us uh, within the organization, is the same people coming and going because it's happening in those first two years. That means you've got a, a, a pretty substantial part of the organization that's been here for a long time uh, and is not moving anywhere quickly. And we don't want them to. But that means that the shift in demographic is going to be necessarily a slow one because it's those front-end people who come and leave quickly. There could be some variability in the demographics there, but those who have been in there longer are just going to stay longer. And so that shift would be a slow one. And even in that window, the county may evolve even more, you know, and the demographic starts to shift again because those cycles are speeding up, uh, not slowing down. Uh, but I, I guess a, a question for you, I mean, we can obviously provide, you know, monthly data on what this looks like. Um, do you want to see that at the board? Obviously, do you want to have that discussion with the board? How would you like to see it? Is it useful or is it better to review it here? Uh, and I'm open to, obviously, we're serving you in, in this regard, and it came up at the board meeting, so I wanted to be responsive to that and then just listen to what your thoughts were on it. Uh, so I thought that this simple graph, maybe you don't even need the graph, just the numbers, would be at the yeah. bottom of our, um, uh, you know, dashboard, and it just would be a reminder for the board you know, what are we doing? How are we doing? But honestly, the more meaningful, I, I, I would imagine, Tony, the more meaningful number might only be on a quarterly basis. And that's when we meet. So I understand yeah. that the HR committee sees it. I just don't want us to be the only one seeing it. And that was my concern. Well, um, so what would you think? Uh, I know that most of the committee reports are verbal. Um, uh, could tr Trustee Jensen, would you think about on the quarterly basis after you review it the following um, board meeting presenting that data there to keep it front and center? 
That way it is the more meaningful in terms of the regularity of it, and then you present it so the full board does see it. Absolutely. Um, and actually, I, I'd ask Maria if you would do that at our next meeting, present this information, this sure. this this slide, which is it's, it's easy to understand. It kind of tells the direction that we're going, and I would really appreciate that you know, and, and how it relates to Hetty too. Absolutely. I, 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 and I think, Tracy, if you're comfortable, um, you know, one thing I'm always worried about in our board meetings is just, you know, information overload. But on a quarterly basis, we, we really could use this, uh, this particular deck, not, not every single slide, uh, Tony, yeah. but pieces of this just to keep everybody apprised so yeah. that our HR dashboard gets seen uh, just as we're seeing uh, some of the quality dashboards as well. Right. I, I completely agree. And I, I like to see diversity. I think there's a lot of, you know, by age, by gender, et cetera, et cetera. But just some of the, the, the big the snapshot at the end is really helpful. And um, just like the snapshot at the beginning, when we look at the dashboard, um, you know, benchmarks, those are really yep. good to, to share, I think, on a quarterly basis. And Tony, I think you'll get a little bit more uh, comments about this through Hetty. Yep. I think that will come yeah. up in those discussions as well. But at, at a minimum, yep. I think what you've got here, the dashboard, um, I, I do think that on a quarterly basis, if, if Tracy as chair brings that forward, certainly be happy to comment on it, Tracy, with you. But I'm just saying, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Great. Great. Got it. And then, Tony, you have to tell us every quarter how much the county population is changing, too, right? Well, it's, a, it's just an estimate, right? If right. you look at the census data, it just it's an estimate until the real data is in, which right. will yeah. be interesting. The population, um, whatever yeah. it's called, the population uh, update that the census does. Yeah, yeah. and they're not, it's not that accurate. I mean, right. what, what, no. what, what did you use for this one, uh, 2016, 20? No, I... I no, I use this. I use the census data, and they have a projection on the oh. census website for Alameda County for the expected okay. uh, in 2020. And so it may be off, but it's based on that. Obviously, it'll get corrected when the census data right. is submitted and tabulated. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there will be shifts and inaccuracies in it, no matter what, because not everyone's going to participate in the census. And whatever that baseline number is, then they're doing any projections out for, from that. Um, so it. But it's going to be as accurate a data as we can get, I think, as a reliable source. Uh, there are other alternatives. There are some county sources that we could look at. Um, but again, I, for those, I'm not clear on how they collect that data and what the accuracy level is. So um, the, census, the Census Bureau seemed the most appropriate place to go. Yeah. Um, whether or not we choose to use something else, you know, I'm very open on that. Well, what, what I would recommend, just this is my propeller head coming to the you know, thought process here. Whatever you use, do not change it, right? So be consistent right. about which one you choose and stick yeah. with it. You may not like it, yeah. but once you've selected the census yeah. track, well, uh, the census data, that's what you would stay with because if you start yeah. using other sources, I think that would yeah. pose some problems from a validity standpoint. Yeah. yeah. I, I would tend to lean on the census data simply because it, it's, 
it happens every 10 years. You can you can work from that, um, and it's easily accessible government governmental information. I agree. Okay. Thanks for the discussion. Uh, Thanks, Maria, for um, all of your input here. Yeah. And I would say, I'm sorry, I don't have the agenda in front of me. I wasn't sure if Mike had a report out on the um, the investment committee was on the agenda or not. Yes, it is on the agenda. Ah, thank uh, you. Sorry, I didn't see it. It's a. Uh, it it won't be a lengthy report. Uh, so uh, the uh, Retirement Plans Investment Committee uh, did meet on uh, August 20th, um, and so what we were looking at is the uh, investment performance and plan performance, you know, through June 30th of uh, 2020. Uh, we also got an update on the uh, status of the closure of the ECHO plan. So I'll just share a few facts and figures with you about that, just to give you a flavor of uh, you know what we talked about uh, during the course of the meeting and where we stand, you know, with that. So. Um, let me see if I can do this here. Are you seeing a, a, a screen that shows graphs here? Yes. Yeah. The the, the different investments. Okay. Very good. So then I do have the uh, correct one here. So, uh, so what you're looking at here is uh, this is our report of our broad market performance, uh, you know, of the plan, and what this reflects is three month, uh, one uh, year to date, one year, three year, and five year and ten year periods. So you can see this is kind of interesting, and you know, basically what this shows is in the last quarter, you know, from the end of March through the end of June, you know, there's been a huge bounce back in the market, you know, generally, uh, which basically is offsetting that large drop in the market, which occurred, you know, uh, during the period of the end of the year to, uh, through the end of uh, March. Uh, so that's what was affecting the year to date and the one year numbers. Uh, but you can see that we're largely back on track now at this point. Um, you know, the, our benchmark market performance, you know, during the quarter was about 19.5%. Our fund actually performed at about 20.5%, you know, meaning our fund's performance was uh, slightly better than the uh, benchmark that we uh, typically look at. Um, and you'll see that this basically sort of is reflected. So here is the look looking just at equities again. This reflects a lot of what happened, you know, during the start of the pandemic when the market, you know, uh, went south. But as you can see, you know, since things had started to stabilize you know, towards, the, um, you know, the beginning of the quarter, you know, there's been strong, a strong, you know, rebound. Um, and then this is our fixed income. And again, because the, the nature of fixed income, you don't see, you know, quite the drop off that occurred with the equities. Um, and with the exception of bonds, but now bonds, uh, this yellow column here, are, are back and performing better as well, too. So overall, this was good news for our plan. You know, basically, this demonstrated that we were performing well, you know, as against the market itself. Um, 
just a little bit of information here. Let me see if I can uh, pump this up so it's a little bit easier for you to uh, see. So in terms of, you know, the plan itself, you know, this shows. So in each meeting, we look at, you know, two periods, you know, the year before and the current year, you know, to that particular time. And so you can see that we've had a small increase in the number of the total plan participants. You can see that the average plan uh, participant balances have increased slightly from about 72,000 uh, to about $76,000. Um, and then the median accounts have also increased by about $2,000 as well, too. One of the things that we do uh, sort of pay special attention to in the committee is, uh, you know, how uh, participants in the plan over the age of 50, we look specifically at information, you know, for that age group since they're the group getting closest to the retirement. And, you know, although we're looking at the plan from the standpoint of all participants, you know, we you know, sort of play, you know, particular attention because those folks, you know, who are uh, relying, you know, most on what the plan provides. So you'll see here that, you know, the participants 50 and over in the plan, you know, are a little bit more than half of the total active plan participants. Uh, but what's kind of interesting is when you uh, scroll down here, so we currently have about $265 million invested in the plan. Um, but, you know, even though about half the participants are over 50, they probably make up about 60% of the money that's actually invested in the plan. Um, but essentially, you know, what this, you know, shows it that the plan, you know, is growing from, you know, last year, you know, over the course of the year. And this has typically been our performance. And so when you look at all the categories in terms of the status of the plan, um, you know, the, the net increase in the plan was about $28 million, you know, from that same period last year, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we did have a larger share of distributions from the plan during this current year. So. So any uh, questions about, you know, uh, those things? I, uh, one other thing I just wanted to share with you um, as well, too, because this is also sort of helpful in understanding, you know, how employees are using this. So in addition, you know, to the actual performance of the plan, you know, we look at a lot of things that sort of reflect what employees are doing, you know, within the retirement plan. And so uh, Goalmaker is a program uh, in the retirement plan which, you know, provides, you know, some opportunity for employees uh, to choose investments based upon, you know, their, uh, their risk profile and, you know, their personal considerations as opposed to just, you know, accepting sort of defaults uh, from the listings. And uh, one of the things we sort of keep track here is you can see that the participation rate for AHS and Goalmaker um, is about, you know, just a little under 40 percent. Um, now, when Prudential, you know, which is our vendor for the plan, looks at all of the plans that they manage, uh, the Goalmaker rate is about 52.3 percent, you know, meaning that, you know, in other prudential plans, you know, employees are taking a more active role in the management of their investments, you know, than is reflected in our plans. And, you know, there's a number of things that we look at, you know, uh, you know, we look at information, you know, regarding, you know, what's happening with uh, loans um, that are being taken from the plan. Um, we look at all of this data, you know, according to, you know, the various age groups. And this is the sort of thing that also sort of informs some of the education programs that Sheila referred to during her presentation. And so, you know, if we notice that, you know, the rate of loans is increasing, we might, you know, include something that talks about, um, you know, some
some of the, uh, the issues associated with, you know, using a retirement account, you know, for certain types of loan activity, you know, uh, providing, you know, information to people on other options they may wish to consider. Um, you know, if we, you know, if we notice a dip in the, uh, you know, for example, the goal maker rate, that might encourage us to provide, you know, some additional education on active investing. So, you know, that's how we try and use this information, um, you know, that gets reported out to us on a quarterly basis. And then the final item that I wanted to talk about is uh, the status of our the ECHO plan termination. So this is a small plan. Alameda Hospital that uh, uh, we began the process of shutting down um, a little over uh, a year ago. Um, so as Sheila had indicated, we are to the point of making distributions. Um, and as you can see here, this breaks down, you know, the total distributions that we'll be making from the plan, um, you know, by the amount of money, the number of people within that group, and then, you know, what the total lump sum payments are. So you'll see here that our total expected distribution uh, is a little over $2 million. Uh, the plan assets uh, uh, as of June 30th, which is the number we're using to, to fund these, was $1.6 million. So we were anticipating about a $450,000 contribution that was going to be necessary to cover uh, the difference between the plan assets and what was being distributed in the plan. So we anticipate that by the end of this month, uh, all of those distributions would have been made, and by that point, we would have satisfied all of uh, the requirements um, that are set forth by the IRS uh, to actually close the plan out. So, so I'll go ahead and uh, stop there. That's uh, the information I had planned to report uh, regarding the meeting, and I'll happy to take any questions if you have them. Any questions from the trustees? Um, thanks, Mike. It's great to see that the investments are doing so well and that participation is stable, I guess, during this time. Yeah. It's as stable as it can be, you know, I guess is the way to put it. So, um, Trustees, do you have any other questions or comments before we adjourn? I can't hear you, King Kenny. No questions. Oh, good. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. It was good to see you all, and I guess we won't meet again until January, till the new year. So um, yeah, right. I look forward to working with Tony to put something together for the um, full board meeting. Did you want to add something, Delvecchio? Okay. Oh, so you can see my bright face and say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and also, I should say, I appreciated that the data um, that you're collecting with regard to um, to comparables. I, I hopefully that'll be useful as we um, continue with our negotiation strategy and work hard as hard as we are to um, come to agreement with our with our bargaining units. Great. Have a good evening, everyone. Meetings adjourned.